COVID-19 has dominated the global public health agenda like no other issue in modern memory. It has also been a major and thus far very negative factor in the U.S.-China relationship. COVID-19-related distrust of China has permeated a large swath of the American public, taking U.S. sentiment toward China to modern-era lows. According to one recent U.S. poll, nearly 8 in 10 Americans regard China as being to blame for COVID-19's emergence and spread. But as America transitions to a new presidential administration, might COVID-19 become an issue that brings the United States and China together? My name is David Feierstein, and welcome to the Bush China Foundation podcast. Today, I have the great pleasure of welcoming to the program Dr. Thomas Frieden, a highly respected leader in the field of global health, to help shed light on these questions. Dr. Frieden, it is truly a privilege to have you as our guest today. My pleasure to speak with you. Dr. Frieden served as director of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, where he led the work that helped to end the Ebola epidemic and also served as commissioner of the New York City Health Department. Currently, Dr. Frieden is president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives, an initiative that focuses on preventing epidemics and cardiovascular disease. Dr. Frieden is also senior fellow for global health at the Council on Foreign Relations. Dr. Frieden, to establish a baseline for a discussion of COVID-19's impact on U.S.-China relations and the challenges and opportunities that COVID-19 presents to the relationship, can you share with us your overall assessment of where things now stand with COVID-19 in the United States, China, and the world, and where does COVID-19 appear to be going? We have very different situations in China as in places like Australia and New Zealand, Hong Kong, Singapore, you have essentially control of the virus and the ability to resume much economic activity. In most of the United States, the virus is seriously out of control and continuing to worsen, but not all of the U.S. The difference between different parts of the U.S. is 100-fold in the amount of virus and tenfold between regions of the U.S. And this emphasizes that public health really can make a big difference. And the U.S. response has failed because it failed to be guided by and to support public health. And I think China recognizes that the success that they've had is a result of trusting public health. And the delayed initial recognition they had indicates the need to further strengthen public health in the country. One of the major themes in public discourse about COVID-19, and one that the United States and China have seemingly looked at rather differently, is which should come first, containing the virus or opening the economy? China seems to have embraced the former mindset, while the United States, certainly at the federal level, has embraced the latter approach. Would you agree with that characterization? And if so, can you offer your assessment of what the optimal approach to containing the virus looks like? The U.S. has made big mistakes here. The many states around the country opened up just as the virus was increasing. That's like leaning into a punch. You're going to get hit and hit hard. And that, unfortunately, is what has happened here. 
It is not always possible to get to zero with COVID, but China has taken the extraordinary approach of making that their goal. And that enables economic growth and a better sense of safety and security. It's unlikely that we'll get to zero in the U.S., but we can certainly do much better by figuring out how to close sooner and with less societal disruption. For example, we now recognize that most schools can stay open, but we still have to be much more careful about indoor activities, social gatherings, anything that could result in the widespread dissemination of this virus. As has been widely reported in the U.S. media, China's economy is beginning to take off again. China appears to be a bit ahead of the United States in terms of bouncing back toward a pre-COVID-19 level of economic performance. From a scientific perspective, and leaving the politics in this country out of it for now, do the Chinese have a point when they contend that their approach to getting the virus under control has actually worked quite well? I think the broader point is that there is not a conflict between public health and economics. If you control the virus, you get your economy back. And we see that all around the country, all around the world. The places that are doing a better job controlling the virus are doing a better job restoring economic growth. I would even make this point more broadly than COVID. It's shown strongly and clearly with COVID, but it's also true for many other public health problems. When people are ill, when they have cancer or heart disease, when they have disabilities or difficulties that aren't addressed health-wise, productivity is less. And so every country in the world needs to really embrace the fundamental concept that there isn't conflict between health and economics. Better health is the route to more economic progress. Recognizing the vast differences in the political systems of the two countries, would you say that there's anything the United States could learn from China, any best practices that could be implemented within the framework of our very different system of government as to how to combat COVID-19? And by the same token, are there any areas where China could learn something from the United States, notwithstanding some of the policy failures that you've just mentioned? China's organized, systematic, extensive, all of society approach is definitely impressive. It is a remarkable accomplishment to have been able to drive the virus down to close to or at zero. And that's why China is able to resume much of its social and economic activity now. I think the U.S., has some important strengths. One of the things that I was really struck by in my eight years as CDC director was the very different status of public health in the U.S. versus China. As director of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, I regularly briefed President Obama, and I was the national spokesperson for dealing with health emergencies. In China, sometimes the local CDCs and the, lo and the national CDC don't have that degree of influence and impact. I think this is something which China has recognized and 
is well on the way toward addressing. As we look ahead, how do you assess the prospects for U.S.-China engagement around COVID-19? Can you give us a sense for how the two governments are engaging and communicating about COVID-19 at present? And how should we be engaging and working together, in your view, as we go forward? Or to put it a different way, what are the United States and China not doing now that we should be doing together to contain this virus? On the one hand, there has been good academic collaboration. Scientists in China, the United States, and all around the world are sharing information in real time and working together because we recognize that we have a common enemy here. It's a virus. It's not a country. It's not people. It's not a political party. It's a virus. And we can work together and by working together, make more progress. We can learn from each other. We can learn what works. We can have a healthy competition to see who can do better at helping to protect the world. If you go back in history, there have been many times when health has been a bridge to peace, collaboration, and cooperation. And I hope that that's what the coming period will bring. If you go back to one of humanity's greatest accomplishments, the global eradication of smallpox, this was done to a significant extent because the United States and the then Soviet Union worked together through the World Health Organization to end smallpox forever, saving hundreds of millions of lives. So I hope that the global fight against COVID will also usher in a stronger period of global collaboration. And that means there's going to have to be much more work together to find money, technical resources, and operational support for countries all over Africa and in many parts of Asia that don't currently have strong public health systems. They don't have systems that can effectively manage COVID or the next health emergency. We have to look beyond COVID. We have to look to the next health emergency and to strengthening our global collaboration so that we don't have another $16 trillion global pandemic when we may well have been able to greatly reduce the impact of this pandemic. Building on that particular point, let me just ask you if there are things that specifically the United States and China, along with other countries, could and should be doing right now to, if you will, prepare for the next COVID-19, which you just alluded to. Uh, Do we see enough forward-looking bilateral and multilateral dialogue out there focused on the pandemic threats of the future. Uh, In a sense, this particular instance, COVID-19, has been a bitter lesson, I think, for many around the world about the issue of preparedness for these types of threats and how to operationalize the preparedness that's in place. What do you see as you look out at the the world, uh, and in particular, the U.S.-China dialogue, in terms of preparing for the future? There are broadly three major changes needed. First, we need to strengthen the World Health Organization. WHO is a necessary and essential component in the global battle against disease. But second, WHO, although necessary, is not sufficient. We need much more global investment in health systems around the world, public health systems around the world, to find, stop, and prevent health threats when and where they emerge. The 
price tag for this is not small. It may be as much as $10 billion a year, and we'll need to figure out a way to make sure that resources that go to these programs are effectively implemented, rapidly spent, accountable for results. This is extremely important, and it's going to require a multilateral approach. Exactly what organization will be involved and how it will be run, that remains to be seen, but it is quite literally now or never with greatly improving our preparedness for pandemics, and we need a multilateral approach. And third, in their bilateral efforts, the U.S. and China working together and working individually with other countries need to do more to help countries step up their level of preparedness so that we're much more likely to find an emerging disease threat when and where it emerges, stop it if that's possible, and prevent it to the greatest extent possible. Dr. Frieden, I want to come back to a point that you mentioned a little while ago, and and that is in relation to the transition now politically that we're engaged in here in the United States. COVID-19 figured prominently in the just-concluded U.S. presidential campaign. The two major party candidates presented starkly different assessments of the current state of play with respect to COVID-19 and also presented very different approaches to addressing this public health challenge. What do you expect from the incoming Biden administration on the COVID-19 front? And do you detect a potential greater openness relative to the outgoing administration to working with China as a partner on COVID-19 related issues? I'm optimistic that what we're hearing from the incoming Biden administration is a focus on science and being guided by science and public health, is a focus on having an organized, systematic response, and is a focus on communicating clearly and openly what is going on. And these three components, organization, science-based, open communication, these are essential to an effective response. I hope that there will be more collaboration between the U.S. and China. During the time that I was CDC director, we had a very robust collaboration with dozens of staff working together in partnership, understanding that we are united by our desire to control disease. And despite any differences, the U.S. and China have a long history of collaboration in public health. And in our non-governmental organization, Resolve to Save Lives, which is part of the entity Vital Strategies, we're honored to be a partner of China. We're registered in uh, Shandong province, and we work in alignment with China's national goals with the realization that we're all stronger and healthier when we work together. Let me ask you a question that goes a little afield of uh, science per se and kind of speaks to the overall context in which the United States has been uh, dealing with China in terms of COVID-19. There has been, in my judgment, I think the judgment of many, a huge degree of politicization of COVID-19 politically within the context of the just concluded presidential campaign. And there has been a real effort on the part of some out of Washington and some in the media 
to portray China as the bad guy and as the culprit in all of this. And I guess my question to you would be, to what degree do you see that mindset that has taken hold in some quarters in Washington continuing to be an obstacle or impediment to U.S.-China collaboration of the type that you've just talked about, even beyond the tenure of the Trump administration? I'm hopeful that the incoming administration will see a much more collaborative approach. Realistically, there are things that are going to be uncomfortable and that we're going to have to address as a world. At the same time, there's much more that unites us than there is that divides us. And the more we work together, the more we collaborate, the more we learn from and with each other, the better off each of us will be in our own societies. Dr. Frieden, I'd like to ask you about the race for the vaccine. And I was wondering if you could update us on where that stands. Uh, Where are the United States and China respectively in that effort? And of course, many other countries are involved as well. And do you see any potential opportunities for mutually beneficial U.S.-China commercial collaboration in the area of vaccines and COVID-19 vaccines specifically? And is it possible at this juncture to assess whether America's market-based approach to vaccine development has been more or less effective than China's more centralized approach? For many years, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention worked with China to improve vaccine policy in China. So it's great to see the kind of progress that's going on with the development of different vaccines. The jury is still out on which vaccines will work best, whether they'll be produced in sufficient quantities, when they'll be available, whether people will take them, whether they're safe and effective. Just today, Pfizer announced preliminary data from their vaccine that suggests at least initially a 90% effectiveness, which is much higher than any of us had anticipated. In terms of the system, I think each system has strengths and weaknesses. Fundamentally, though, a good system is going to be transparent in terms of its data, equitable in terms of vaccine distribution, efficient in terms of production capacity, and having a sense of solidarity, understanding that within countries and around the world, It's in all of our best interest to make sure that those in greatest need get vaccine early. And that's an area for potential collaboration. I would, as a non-governmental person myself, I would love to see a healthy competition between the U.S. and China to see who can help countries around the world more and faster. That would be a positive kind of competition rather than the opposite. Dr. Frieden, um, could you tell us a little bit more about your organization, Resolve to Save Lives? Resolve to Save Lives started about three and a half years ago with generous support from philanthropy in the United States. And we work on two issues broadly. The first is prevention of epidemics with a focus on Africa, 
where we work with dozens of countries to help them improve their system to find, stop, and prevent health threats. The second is the promotion of cardiovascular health, preventing strokes and heart attacks. And there we work in China, India, and dozens of other countries to try to help health systems improve the treatment of high blood pressure, reduce sodium consumption, and eliminate an artificial and toxic compound known as trans fat. Those three cardiovascular health initiatives together could prevent 100 million deaths over the next 30 years. And what we're seeing is that some of the harms of COVID are occurring because populations don't have resiliency in their health. If we treat and prevent hypertension better, if we improve nutrition, people will be less susceptible to severe illness, whether it's from COVID-19 or diabetes or another infection. And what we see in China and around the world is that treatment of high blood pressure is still successful less than one out of every six patients. And that means that there are many preventable heart attacks and strokes and much preventable lost economic productivity. Furthermore, we're seeing that consumption of sodium is driving blood pressures up and driving heart attacks and strokes and making society more vulnerable to infectious diseases. So a substantial reduction in sodium consumption and an increase in potassium consumption through, for example, the use of low sodium salts can save lives, save money, and improve our resilience as a society. And Dr. Frieden, just building on that, could you elaborate a little bit on what your experience has been uh, specifically operating in China? And I know that, as you just noted, you work with other nations as well. But I think our listeners would be very interested in, in understanding better what it's been like for, for you as the leader of a prominent nonprofit in the health area operating in China and working with Chinese interlocutors. We are very honored to be working in China. We're honored to be officially registered there as a non-governmental organization. We were uh, glad to do whatever we could uh, during the initial days of COVID to provide any support and then to learn from China because our staff in China were sharing with us the public information uh, from China and that helped us really understand what was happening and what was needed. One of the things that's so encouraging about working in China is that when the government makes up its mind to do something, it usually gets it done. And the government has set ambitious health targets for 2030. And we hope that it will achieve those targets because globally, whether China succeeds or fails has a huge impact on whether the world succeeds or fails. What's happening globally is that we're shifting from primarily infectious diseases causing illness, disability, and death to primarily non-infectious diseases like high blood pressure and diabetes causing lost economic productivity, disease, illness, disability, and death. And globally, our opportunity to really make a difference and drive those rates down depends on China succeeding, depends on India succeeding, depends on the large countries in Africa succeeding, depends on Brazil and uh, other low and middle income countries 
succeeding just as much or even more than it depends on the U.S. and the European Union making continued progress. Dr. Frieden, thank you so much again for your time and insights today. We greatly appreciate your perspective and views, as well as your service to our nation and your tremendous ongoing commitment to advancing global public health. It's a pleasure to speak with you. I want to thank all our listeners for tuning in. Remember to look for the Bush China Foundation podcast on our website, SoundCloud, and iTunes, where you can listen, follow, and subscribe so you won't miss our future conversations. Thank you for listening.